Go ahead and open your Bibles. Well, good morning. Good morning. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. We'll start there this morning. Lord willing, this morning we're going to look at Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 32, and then work our way through uh, chapter 10. So quite a few verses. What we'll do, as is our custom, is we will stand out of reverence for God's Word, and then as we get into it, we will there will be a place, and, and you can sit if you want to sit, I'll have everyone sit. The reason I do that is, we stand out of reverence for God's Word, I, you're not going to be able to do that if you're passed out from locking up your knees or something, okay? So, um, so we will begin in Acts 9.32, work our way through uh, chapter 10. So if you would please stand with me, and we will read beginning in Acts chapter 9, verse 32. And God's Word says this to us this morning. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all aside and knelt down and prayed. Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. I'm going to be seated if you'd like. Picking up in verse 9 again. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. 
But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were, who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, has directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guest. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day he entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon at Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him appear to you. Not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. 
And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then he asked him to remain for some days. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would take your word and that you would do a mighty work in our hearts. We need your help. We need your help to understand. We need your help to apply. We need your help to see what it is that you want us to see clearly. By your spirit, please do that in our lives now. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. When Jesus was walking on the earth, when he had taken on flesh, he revealed, among other things, that God does not relate to people based on their outward appearance, on their social status, what they do, uh, who they are, uh, what their nationality is, what their ethnicity is, what diseases they may have. Jesus... Jesus was a man who hung out with folks like John, who ate locusts and wild honey. He was a friend with lowly fishermen and despicable, despised tax collectors and high-class doctors. He conversed with Samaritans and touched those actually afflicted with disease like leprosy. Jesus overcame societal barriers. He broke barriers. He broke the greatest barrier of all, our sin that separated us from God. And God saves us based on the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. But God could have decided not to save us. God could have decided to keep only the Jews to himself. He could have decided that. But as we see in the life of Jesus, that is not what he chose to do. Instead, what he chose to do in grace was to reach out to Gentiles, people like you and me. If you read through the passage this morning, I'm sure that you noticed that Luke, the author of Acts, repeated this story again and again. And it seems to me he does so because this is particularly important. This is something that he wants us to understand. And so he repeats himself so, so that it is understood. So we catch what it is that he is saying. We're going to look this morning at a change in redemptive history. Pre-Acts 10 Gentiles were unclean. They were defiled without any hope. They were doomed to an eternity without God in hell. Post-Acts 10 Gentiles, clean, with the possibility of hope in Christ. 
The gospel does not discriminate. It has power to save all who believe. Jew, Gentile, young, old, white, black, rich, poor, urbanite, suburbanite. The gospel of Christ does not discriminate. And thank God, if you're saved, that He chose to reach out to you. And once God saves a person, God continues to work in that person by and through His Word. And Lord willing, that's what we will see this morning. God's saving people. And when He saves them, continues to work in them. We see that, we'll see that in Cornelius. We'll see that in Peter. And we'll see that work occurring by way of His gospel message. In the early chapters of Acts, we see thousands being saved. Peter proclaiming the message to hundreds and thousands of people and thousands of people coming to know Christ at once. As we get into Acts chapter 9, the, the emphasis seems to switch and does switch to Peter's individual ministry, personal ministry. Yes, he's traveling around. Yes, there are many being saved. But we read of specific people, specific names like Aeneas and Tabitha, Simon the Tanner. And it's as though as we come into chapter 9, and particularly the end of chapter 9, it serves as a segue to prepare us and ready us for what we are going to read in chapter 10. The conversion of a Gentile by the name of Cornelius. And at the end of chapter 9, the, the last sentence there in your Bible, it says that Peter's been staying with Simon the Tanner for some days. And this ought to be a clue to us that things may be starting to change here. But Tanner worked with the, the hide of dead animals, the skins of dead animals. And this person would have been ceremonially unclean to, to the Jews of the day. They would have thought of them dirty. And yet here is Peter staying with them. And so it's maybe indication that things are starting to change. So there's four things that I want us to notice this morning from the text. Let's begin first with Cornelius, the condition of Cornelius. I want us to notice the condition of Cornelius. Verse 1 told us that Cornelius lived and worked in Caesarea. Uh, he was a military man who commanded about 100 men. Uh, Caesarea was a place that was a Roman military stronghold. It was a governmental center. Uh, a lot of government activity occurred there. Government officials stayed there, and that's one reason these, these soldiers were there. Anybody that lived in Caesarea or passed through Caesarea, it would be a reminder to them that they were under Roman authority. The, cult, the Roman culture was dominant there. But the emphasis of this part of the narrative is not on Cornelius' location. Rather, the emphasis is on Cornelius' character. Not where he was in the world, but who he was in the world. Verse 2 tells us that he was a devout God-fearer. Devout meaning that he was serious, that he was committed to the God of Israel. He wasn't a full convert. He hadn't been circumcised. He wasn't keeping the dietary laws. But he had a reverence and a deep respect for Yahweh and serious about God. He wasn't playing around with his devotion to God. He was committed. The, the verse goes on to say that he prayed regularly and, and, and that he had given uh, or leads his family well. So he's praying regularly. Even his family... It fears the Lord. 
Now here you have a man that, that's, that's not only in, invested into Yahweh for his own personal benefit, but is also leading his, his family as well. The passage goes on and says that he's a giving person. He gave alms. That is, he gave to the poor and the needy. Not a man just worried about himself or his family, but also others. So Cornelius is a good, decent, respected man. And by good, I mean like a worldly, general kind of good. Biblically, we know that if something is done good or someone's good, it's done in faith with the right motives for the glory of God. Absolutely. But surely we all know a Cornelius-type person, an honorable, respectable man. Verse 22 is a good summary of Cornelius. It says, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. So he has a good reputation. It's known what kind of man Cornelius is. But although Cornelius is a good, decent man with a good reputation, Cornelius is not a saved man. You might say, well, Pastor Rick, we just read verse 35, and it seems like that might be what verse 35 is saying. Verse 35 says, But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. I looked up lots and lots of commentators on this verse. Many. And nearly everyone that I read ended up at the same place. Some took some different roads to get to the same place. Most took the same road to get to the same place. But this is what just about every one of them said that this verse meant in particular uh, about being acceptable. What they said is, is acceptable most likely means is that God works wonders to find those who are genuinely seeking after him, and he send messengers to them. God works wonders to reach the person who is gen genuinely seek seeking him. This makes sense to me because of verses 4 and 31. Both of those verses say that Cornelius' prayers and almsgiving had been noticed by God. Later, as we continue in the series, in Acts 17, we're going to read of Paul in Athens. And he's speaking to the people there, Areopagus. And this is what he tells them. He says that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Isaiah 55.6, the prophet says there, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. It seems to me Cornelius is doing this kind of grace-enabled seeking. And it is acceptable. Meaning God recognizes His search and goes to great lengths to make sure that He can hear and then respond to the gospel. So Cornelius' condition is that he is not saved, but he is a devout, upright, good man. Many of us, probably all of us, have either heard someone say or been to a funeral maybe and said he was a good man. He was an honorable man. And he's in heaven now. We've heard that kind of thing. 
Maybe somebody's even talked to us about that. Well, if you're just sincere enough, it'll all work out in the end. Cornelius would be a good place to take that person that, that talks that kind of way. In Acts 2, and there's, if you want to keep notes off to the side maybe, there's, there's lots of parallels between Acts 2 and Acts 10, at least three of them that, that I counted. But it's interesting what happens in Acts 2 because this is one of those parallels. In Acts 2, remember, Peter is in Jerusalem preaching to Jews, about to preach a sermon at Pentecost. And there's thousands of men there. And how does Acts 2, how does Luke describe those men in Acts 2? In verse 5, he says, they were devout men from every generation, nation. The same exact word for devout used there is the same word used in Acts 10 for devout. What does Peter tell the devout Jews? He says, repent for the forgiveness of sins. To be sincere, to be devout is not enough. To, to, to go to church every Sunday does not make you right with God. To pray regularly does not make you right with God. To lead your family well does not make you right with God. To give to the poor and the needy does not make you right with God. Cornelius, good man. But he needs Christ. And Acts 10 is clear. It's not clear enough. In Acts 11, Peter had went back to the church in Jerusalem. is reporting back about what had happened to Cornelius. Because again, this is a big deal. All of a sudden, Jew, or Gentiles are having the Holy Spirit poured out on them. And he reports back to the church what has happened. And when they ask him, yo, what's up with Cornelius? This is what he says. We, we get a detail in chapter 11 that we don't get in chapter 10. Cornelius says in chapter 11, verse 13 and 14, and he, referring to Cornelius, told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. You will be saved. So we, we, we know that he was not yet saved because he will be saved once Peter makes it to him with the message. He had to hear the message of the gospel and receive that gospel message before salvation could come to him. It doesn't get any clearer than that. God was at work in Cornelius' life. We're certain of it. The scriptures are clear. But God was also at work in Peter's life. Peter, a man who was already a Christ follower, God did not just save Peter and then let Peter go. God saved Peter and continues to change and reform Peter. Which brings us to our second point. God works in His people to bring salvation to those who have yet to believe. God works in His people to bring salvation to those who have yet to believe. A significant part of this narrative is is about Peter. Sometimes we think of Acts 10, we think only of Cornelius, but a significant part of what we read was about Peter. And, and, and what happens to him, what he sees in the vision, and then how he responds to that vision. And beginning in verse 9 and following, we find Peter praying when he receives a vision from God. And it's a vision of a sheet that is let down of, out of heaven, and it's filled with all kinds of animals, clean and unclean, all mixed up together. And this was a pretty significant problem. Because in Leviticus 11, and in other places in the Old Testament, there were certain dietary laws and ceremonial laws that God had laid down. And some of those were, 
uh, things that you could and could not eat, animals that were clean and unclean. You couldn't eat Gentile food. You, you couldn't eat food that had been prepared and laid on a Gentile's plate or prepared with uh, instruments from a Gentile's hands. If, if you had a meal with a Gentile, uh, there you ran great risk of being contaminated by that Gentile. If you went into their house, you most certainly would be contaminated by that Gentile, if by nothing else from the dirt that would get on your feet. And so these ceremonial laws, these dietary laws, were meant to keep the Jews and the Gentiles separate. But then Peter hears the voice of the Lord in verse 13. It says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. There is emphatic language there. Peter's like, I've never eaten it. I'm never going to eat it. Ever since I was a small child, I've adhered to the dietary laws. I am not going to begin now eating unclean food. God says, what God has made clean, do not call common. This is repeated three times. Peter has this thing with the number three. It's interesting to note that God has great patience with Peter. He he, he doesn't rebuke Peter here. Great patience with Peter. Think about this. God had just commanded Peter to do something. And now Peter's telling God, no. I mean, Peter really doesn't know what he's missing, right? Man has never had bacon. If he had, I'm not sure he would have been so bold, all right? But he had adhered to these dietary laws that were given to him as a child. He had never broken them. And now God is saying they are no more. And in this moment, he is more devoted to what he had been doing his entire life, to his customs, to these laws, than he is to God. His allegiance is to his customs rather than his creator. Had it been up to Peter, he would have never, went into Cornelius' house, a Gentile's house, and been contaminated by him. Peter eventually got the meaning of the vision, that this wasn't as much about food as it was about people. Verse 28, Peter says, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Later in Acts 15, Peter's actually teaching about this, that the Jews and the Gentiles have, are, are together in the faith. And listen to what he says when he's teaching about this. He said, God made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Certainly, uh, there are many Christians who have undermined their walk with the Lord by engaging in sinful behavior and say, it's okay because I'm somehow advancing the gospel. That's happened, and it happens. They say, I know I'm doing things I might not ought to be doing, but it's advancing the gospel. That's happened, and that happens. But Peter shows it's possible to undermine the advancement of the gospel by saying, I'm really just protecting my walk with the Lord. I'm too righteous for that. It's not how I've always done it. Never done it that way before. That Peter-like mindset has the potential to stymie gospel advancement. I, I read 
um, an article recently uh, about Gandhi. I didn't know much about Gandhi before I read this article and read some additional things about him, kind of piqued my interest. Uh, and what I learned was is that Gandhi, early on in his life, was drawn to Christianity. Uh, someone had given him a Bible. He had read it. He was kept. He was staying in the Old Testament, and uh, he talked to somebody about it. And somebody said, "You should read the New Testament." So he starts reading the New Testament, and he comes to Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount really captivates Gandhi. He it pulls on him, uh, and it's about this time, also in his own culture, that he's becoming unsatisfied with the with the caste system. People separated in different classes. And so he, he, he decides he's going to go to a Christian church. And so he goes to a church that is nearby. And I want to quote from this article what it says as he walks up to the front door. The, quote, the church elder asked, what do you think you're, where do you think you're going, Kaffir? A Kaffir is an extremely derogatory name for the class that he was in. Where do you think you're going, Kaffir? There's no room for Kaffirs in this church. Get out of here. I'll have my assistants throw you down the steps. End quote. Obviously, Gandhi never converted. Later on, he was asked, and he said, Christianity has a caste system too. In an interview with a missionary by the name of Stanley Jones, he asked Gandhi this, Mr. Gandhi, Though you quote the words of Christ, why do you appear so adamantly rejecting becoming his follower? Gandhi replied, I don't reject Christ. I love your Christ. But I hate your Christians because your Christians are so unlike your Christ. He went on to say this, If Christians would really live according to the teachings of Christ as found in the Bible, all of India would be Christian today. Consider for a moment if that man had not been kept from hearing the gospel. Tragic. God ultimately into control. 1 Corinthians 9.12, Paul says this, talking about his right to make a wage from what he is that he does. He says, we have not made use of this right. We have not made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Paul was willing not just to lie down his preferences, but even his rights so that the gospel might be unhindered. When we make salvation, the way of salvation about us, we get in the way of salvation for others. It's not about us. It's about Christ. It's about dying to self and holding tightly to the gospel, and holding tightly to the God of the gospel because those things never change. And allowing the gospel and the God of the gospel to, to work mighty works in our own lives and change us and align our minds with the mind of God and God's will. God works on those that he has saved that he might save others. The third point that I'd like you to notice this morning is a gospel message is delivered. A gospel message is delivered. Emphasis on gospel. Highlighted and underlined, circled and starred. Gospel message is delivered. Leading up to verse 33, Paul had obeyed uh, the command that he received in the vision. He goes to Caesarea. 
And while he's on his way, Cornelius is getting excited. And as you read that text, as you read that narrative, he's pretty amped up about it. You can feel the intensity starting to build. He gathers, the scriptures say, relatives and close friends. They've, they've come to hear what it is that Peter has to say. And then Peter gets there. And when he gets there, um, he, he has this conversation with Cornelius. Says, I am just a man just like you. I have my own failings. I had my own sinful deficiency, but, but God has done a work in my life and he continues to do a work in my life and he's changed my heart and mind on things. And then in verse 33, Cornelius tells him that they're gathered there to hear what it is that the Lord has commanded Peter. And what does Peter do? In verse 34, he says, So Peter opened his mouth. Remember from Acts 8, this is the exact same verbiage that Luke uses with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember that? Where the Ethiopian eunuch says, how will I understand unless somebody explains to me? In Acts 8, the exact same language says, and Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scriptures, shared with him the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter, like Philip, opens his mouth and begins to share the good news about Jesus Christ to Cornelius and those that are there. It, it seems as though, it, again, if you, go, if you go back to Acts 2, where uh, Peter is preaching to the Jews in Jerusalem, he almost nearly regurgitates his sermon to the, to the Gentiles in Caesarea. It's, it's, it's the same gospel. The, the, the same message that goes to the Jews in Jerusalem is the same message that goes to the Gentiles in Caesarea. Regardless of who a person is, regardless of where they're from or their backgrounds or their needs, they need to hear the full gospel truth of Jesus. We can't say, well, I think I know what this person needs. I think I know what this person needs to hear. So I'm going to give them a little bit of this part of the gospel, but I'm going to leave this off. Or this person here, I think, no, the scriptures are clear. It's the gospel that saves. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to all who believe, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. The gospel has power, and Peter, like Paul, is fixated on Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and the forgiveness that Jesus offers to those who repent and believe. And then when we come to verse 39, and this is, this is the meat of the sermon, his sermon, not my sermon, his sermon. He says, they put Christ to death on the cross, that he has risen from the grave, and that there are witnesses that seen him when he rose from the grave, and they've been commanded now to tell others about this. And in verse 43, Peter says, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Cornelius, you can have forgiveness from your sins and for your sins. And you can know peace. Forgiveness is the heart of the Christian gospel. Forgiveness for devout Jews. Forgiveness for Samaritans. Forgiveness for Ethiopian eunuchs. For forgiveness for hyper-Pharisees. Forgiveness for devout Gentiles like Cornelius. Forgiveness over and over and over to all kinds of people from all kinds of places. Forgiveness. 
Jesus on the cross to the thief. The thief receives forgiveness. The Christian gospel at its core says, you can have forgiveness from sin. If you're here this morning and you've never experienced or been given that forgiveness, God says this morning, repent and believe that you might have forgiveness from sin. Forgiveness. Maybe you are Christian this morning, but you something's going on in your life. Maybe it's a sin that you've not had victory over, something that you're struggling with, something that maybe you've not told anyone about. The gospel says you too can receive forgiveness. You can have forgiveness. Repent and receive that forgiveness. The gospel is for all people, believers, non-believers. At the core of it is forgiveness. The fourth point that I want us to see this morning is the Holy Spirit of God is ushered in by the gospel message. The Holy Spirit of God is ushered in by the gospel message. We see in verse 44 that the Spirit uses the gospel to fall on all the people who heard that day while he was speaking. The Spirit wasn't waiting around for an invitation to an altar call. Ever been to one of those churches? The Spirit already laid conviction on these folks and had brought repentance about and now was saving these folks. He didn't need an altar call. He didn't need an, he didn't need an invitation. He didn't need, even need Peter to finish. Just get to the gospel, gospel, I'm on it. And these folks are saved. And all who heard were saved. Now think about this for a moment. Cornelius had invited his close friends and relatives. And the Scriptures don't say exactly why they were there other than that he invited them. But I would assume it's possible that there may at least been a few of them that showed up just because he invited them. Maybe some showed up to, as a favor. You know, we're going to do a favor for this guy. Maybe, you know, they thought Cornelius was a little off his rocker already. I mean, here we have a Gentile, you know, fearing the God of the Jews. I mean, the guy's already kind of out there, you know? And so they're going to go and, and kind of maybe support him through this because he may need therapy afterwards. And so you have all these people show up, maybe just indulging Cornelius. They get there, and the Spirit uses that indulgence to save them that very day. The story headlines Peter and Cornelius, but many others are saved as a result of Peter's gospel message. Listen, you may talk to someone about the gospel and think, this is who God wants to save through this gospel message that I'm sharing. You may invite someone to church and think, this is, this is who God wants to save through this gospel message. The gospel is not confined or restricted to who we think ought to receive it. The gospel is powerful, and when it goes off, it will get who it wants to get. And so invite them all in hopes that they all would be saved. Earlier we noticed that the same gospel was preached to the Jews at Pentecost as in, uh, in Acts 2 as is preached here. Now, 
the Spirit falls on the Gentiles just as it does the Jews in Acts 2 at Pentecost. And what does this tell us? Again, it tells us that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile in the economy of God. They were brought into the kingdom of God the same way, and the Spirit of God falls on them in the same way. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, all were made to drink of one Spirit. Jews and Gentiles are on the same footing with God. And if you've believed, you've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In Galatians, um, sometime later after this occurred, we learn that Peter pulled back from eating with the Gentiles, basically due to peer pressure. He was afraid of what other people were going to say. And remember, here in Acts 10, he had been told by God not to call common what God had made clean. Peter changes his mind, his thinking about those things. Acts 15 has him preaching and teaching that God has changed those things. And sometime later, he goes back to living how he was living earlier. You get that? He's convicted by a message that God had for him. He changes his way of thinking about it, the way he's living, even telling others about it, and somehow reverts back to his old way of living. Anybody empathize with Peter here? Hear a convicting message, God does a work, and somehow we find ourselves right back where we started. It happens to Peter. And thank God for Peter, there was a Paul. Because Paul comes to him. And Paul, though, doesn't say, stop living in the fear of man, Peter. He could have said that. He doesn't say that. He could have said, yo, what's up? He could have said that. He doesn't say that. What does he say? Those of you who are familiar with this passage know exactly what he says. Pastor says that he opposed him to his face and he said, your conduct is out of step with the gospel. What did he mean? It was conduct that ignored what God had done. It was conduct that said to a watching world, God doesn't reconcile sinners to one another. Powerful, the, the gospel is not powerful enough for that. It, it said that God doesn't bring different kinds of people from different backgrounds together. The gospel not powerful enough to accomplish that. It says to the watching world, the gospel is weak. Peter's conduct was detrimental to the gospel, and he was confronted about it. And so we too must live in step with the gospel, and if not, then we need to repent. We need to repent. We are commanded to take the, the gospel to all people, not just those that are like us have the same interests as us. Folks, we have been forgiven much. We've been forgiven much. Our hearts ought to sing with thankfulness and gratitude each day that God has saved us. That He has released us from the bondage of sin. That we can know God the Father. That our sin debt is not going to be held against us. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you will never pay for your sin. You will only experience eternal bliss on the other side of the grave. 
You will never be sent to utter darkness and loneliness. You only will know the blessings of forgiveness. We have much to be thankful for. Our Christ has done much for us. We are now slaves to righteousness. We're freed from the bondage of sin. If you have believed in Jesus, God in his mercy has saved you. He has brought you into his family. He has placed his spirit in you. How much more different are you from God we are far more different from God than we could ever be from someone else. I mean, it's incomparable. Yet God, through Jesus' work and sacrifice, has relationship and communion with us. Once sinners, now saints, through marvelous and wonderful grace. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I would ask now that you would just search our hearts. Father, that you would reveal to us where we have maybe had a judgmental attitude about someone because they were different than us. But that, Father, that we would just be a thankful people too. That we would soak up and relish your goodness. That we would remember the forgiveness that we have in and through your Son. Help us, Lord, to remember often how good you have been to us. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.